Before we look at our text in Luke 19, I want to take a step back for a few moments. Because of our focus on multiple Gospels at once over a long period of time, it can be easy to lose the thread of what a particular Gospel is showing us. And as an example, look at Luke 18, just briefly. And it was strange, because I wanted to see when we started Luke 18, and it was actually 10 months ago, or actually over a year ago, when we started looking at it, but there was about a 10-month gap in there for various reasons. But I want to just look briefly at one of the themes, you might say, of Luke, is to show the upside-down and unexpected words and actions of Jesus in this chapter. We won't read through the text, but just might be able to glance at certain portions as we think about this. But in Luke 8, or 18, 9 to 14, we have the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, Pharisee and the tax collector. And we have the, the sort of two opposite poles of society in those days. And, and who was saved? The, the, tax, the publican, the tax collector. Who was not saved? The Pharisee. And so that's completely unexpected. Um, in verses 15 to 17, we have the disciples who think children are too unimportant for Jesus to bless, but Jesus gladly receives them. Uh, in verse 18, we have a rich young ruler who eagerly comes to Jesus, seems to be very religious, and he asks how to get eternal life, but he goes away grieving without it. In verse 31 down to verse 33, we have Jesus, who's the exalted son of man, prophesies that as he goes up to Jerusalem, he will have to go down into humiliation, suffering, and death before he is raised to life again. And then at the end of chapter 18, Jesus heals a blind beggar who's doubly outcast by society as as a blind man and as a beggar. But by the end of the story, the blind man can see, and he and a whole crowd are rejoicing and praising God. And then we get to Luke 19, our text for today, and he's going to associate with a man who's not only a tax collector, but a chief tax collector at that, and one who will admit to fraud. But when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, salvation comes to that house. And so as we see Luke writing about Christ and what he does, we see the contrast of what matters to the world and what matters to God as this important theme in this chapter and elsewhere in the Gospels. And some theologians call this what you might have heard as the great reversal. That is, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The religious are condemned, sinners are justified, the rich are actually poor, the poor are actually rich, the blind see, the lost are found. That's the kind of thing that happens in God's story of salvation. Now, our text for today, Luke 19, and this is only in Luke, the story of Zacchaeus, And listen as I read that. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we have first the setting, verses 1 or 2. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And you might remember that Jericho is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a long six-hour walk uphill from about 1,000 feet below sea level, near the Dead Sea, to about 2,500 feet above sea level. And this is probably just a couple of days before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. And it may even be exactly a week before his crucifixion. But after healing blind Bartimaeus and his companion, Jesus still has an important appointment in Jericho. And the appointment is with a man named Zacchaeus. And it's a form of a Hebrew name, Zacchaeus. And interestingly, Zacchaeus' name means pure or righteous. And he's considered anything but, of course, by the people of Jericho. He is, it says here, a chief tax collector. And looking at how tax collectors are seen in the Gospels, it's hard to come up with a modern analogy. I, I tried to, but couldn't think of one. It was galling enough for the Jews to have to pay taxes to Rome as their overlords, but to have Jewish tax collectors in the middle who were in constant contact with the Gentiles, assisting the Gentiles in taxing the Jews, made them disreputable. And on top of that, adding fraud would make them even more unpopular. Now, the Romans would award tax collecting duties in a particular area to the highest bidder. So you could have a businessman whose, whose job is to collect taxes for the Romans. And you'd have a contract with the Romans and say, I will give you this much per year, or whatever the, the term was. But whatever taxes the collectors got above that would cover their operating expenses. And you can see they would be in a position to abuse that opportunity. As long as the Romans got their money, they didn't really care too much about how it was collected. In fact, you could even perhaps get the Romans involved. If you're having trouble with certain uh, tax collection duties, you could maybe get a few soldiers to help you enforce those things. And Jericho in particular was probably a great place to be a tax collector because it was an important, productive, wealthy city on the border between two provinces. So there's lots of commerce on these main roads. There's lots of goods coming through. There's lots of opportunities for charging and for overcharging taxes. Imagine as your caravan of various uh, goods comes into Jericho and you have people sitting there, tax collectors, and saying, oh, well, you have th- this many items. We will tax you whatever percent and collect that on the way through. And we look at a few examples of where tax collectors are referred to many times in the Gospels. Uh, we see in Luke uh, 3, 12 to 13, we see some tax collectors come to be baptized by John the Baptist. They say, teacher, what shall we do? And John says, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And so we have in this case the inclination, at least of some tax collectors, who are uh, who are given to over charging for the tax. In fact, John the Baptist was baptizing by the Jordan. Some of these tax collectors may have worked for Zacchaeus. We don't know. And so we have Zacchaeus, who's the chief of these tax collectors. And so he's at the top of the pyramid, and he takes a cut from each of the collectors below him. And to see how much these tax collectors are despised, just listen about how Jesus refers to them in Matthew 5. They're talked about in the same context as Gentiles. Now, the Jews did not leave the Gentiles, 
but they also didn't like the tax collectors, these Jewish uh, collectors. In Matthew 5, 46 and 47, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors love those who love them. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So when Jesus wanted to, to contrast an ordinary Jew with somebody who was wicked, he picked, at least in their minds, Gentiles and tax collectors. Even in Matthew 18, in this passage about church discipline, at the final step, if he refuses to listen to them, that is, the those who have come to him and converted him with a sin, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so in Jewish society, Gentiles are outside the community, and so are tax collectors. And I think it's kind of interesting. Several times the Gospels refer to groups of tax collectors and sinners. It's almost as if they're their own special category of depravity. You want to categorize people, you have sinners, and then you have tax collectors. They're like almost apart from sinners. They're so sinful, they don't even belong with the ordinary sinners. They get their special category of sinfulness. And as I mentioned before in Luke 18, when Jesus wants to shock listeners with a parable of polar opposites in Jewish society, he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And there's the one who seems closest to salvation, that's the Pharisee, and the one who seems furthest away from salvation is the tax collector, but he is one who is ultimately saved. So we have this tax collector, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, and this particular one, Zacchaeus, sees a commotion in the city. And Jesus, the great teacher and miracle worker, is here in our city. And so we see next in verses 3 and 4, Zacchaeus' determination to see Jesus. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. We have this crowd here. Uh, we've talked before about the crowd in this context, pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem for Passover, plus interested folks who live in Jericho. And you can imagine, uh, you've been to parades and other, other places, uh, popular events. Due to his unpopularity, Zacchaeus might not have wanted to get mixed in with the crowd to try to push himself up to the fronts to see better, or maybe the crowd might not have been gracious in giving him space to move forward. You can Sometimes people will move aside if there's a shorter person who wants to get up front, but you can see them sort of edging closer together to keep Zacchaeus from seeing anything because they don't like Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus is determined to see Jesus, and we don't know exactly why at this point he wants to see Jesus. Was he interested because Jesus was famous? Was Zacchaeus kind of a celebrity watcher, all the things that go on in the town? I think it's more than that because of the lengths he went to to see him. He didn't just give up and say, oh, well, I'll maybe see him another time. It says here, he ran on ahead. We see a lot of action in this. It almost seems like Mark in the action in this particular story. He runs on ahead, and in his eagerness to see Jesus, he climbs up into a tree. Now, we don't know how old he was or how stout he might have been. He was short, but uh, even today, it's kind of undignified for a, a man to climb up in a tree uh, imagine having the robes and all that kind of thing. It wouldn't be easy, or again, even dignified once you got up there. But he wasn't concerned about embarrassment. Seeing Jesus was more important to him. Now, unfortunately, we're having trouble with the, with the projector. I can't show you a slide of a sycamore tree, but uh, if you want, you can maybe ask me later. I can show you on the computer. 
but it's a, a very broad base and has these low branches that go out very far. And so it's easy to climb up into there, even for a short, perhaps older man, to climb up onto the tree and get out on a branch and see better. And I found it interesting, thinking about Zacchaeus, it's possible that in his life he cursed his short stature. You know, he, he wants to do this, but he can't quite see. He wants to see Jesus, but he can't see. But the, the truth is that his gift from God, being short in stature, uh, was a blessing to him. In God's providence, the height that Zacchaeus received from God was a gift to him that he, that he was able to see Jesus better. It meant his extra effort in trying to see Jesus made him all the more noticeable. If he had been a middle-height person, Jesus might not have seen him as easily. Well, we have Zacchaeus' determination to see Jesus. Next, we have Jesus' determination to stay with Zacchaeus. Verses 5 and 6. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Again, we see that, that action in this account. Hurry and come down. And this is perhaps dangerous. Any of you parents ever tell your kids up in a tree, hurry, come down. What do you say? Be careful. Come down slowly. Take your time. But Jesus says, hurry and come down. And Zacchaeus does hurry and come down. There's an urgency to this. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't ask Zacchaeus if he can stop by. And this may seem rather rude to us today. And, and this is, in fact, the only time in the Gospels where Jesus invites himself over. And I was told as a kid, don't invite yourself over to your friend's house. If they're having a, there are times when you go to your friend's house and they're having something really good for dinner. And you, hey, can I have dinner here tonight? And if I did that, my mom would say, don't do that. That's rude. We don't do that here. But in this case, in this society, perhaps, it was an honor to have an important and even miracle-working guest to stay at your house. And notice here that Jesus doesn't say please. He doesn't ask. But he says, I must stay at your house. This is emphatic. And that's because the two of them had a divine appointment to keep. And what a turn in the story. Zacchaeus had just wanted to see Jesus, and now he has Jesus as a house guest. And Jesus here insists on going to the home of just about the least likely person in all Jericho to stay with. And we might ask ourselves, as Zacchaeus tries to see Jesus, he's eager to see Jesus, and now Jesus calls him, what was his heart like? Was he under some conviction beforehand? Did he want to see Jesus because he knew Jesus was a great teacher, a, a great communicator of God's law? Or, as I wondered before, was he just curious about Jesus? He'd heard stories about who Jesus was, just wanted to see him. And we don't know for sure, but he did receive Jesus gladly, didn't he? It says he received him rejoicing. That's one way you can translate that. He received him rejoicing. A big smile on his face as he risked his life climbing out of that sycamore tree. He was so glad. He, he wasn't embarrassed. Perhaps if you were called out by somebody like this, you might feel a little shy about it, but he was glad to receive Jesus into his home. And the effort he made to see Jesus and the joy he has in meeting Jesus shows it's not just a passing interest. So we have this this joy, Zacchaeus, coming down to, to have Jesus into his home. But after this expression of joy, there's a sour note, as there often is in these stories of Jesus. And we see the crowds grumbling in verse 7. When they saw it, 
they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And the crowd, seeing that Jesus has singled out perhaps the least popular person in town, is unhappy. And we don't know who this group consists of, but just a few verses earlier, we see the crowd in Jericho telling the blind man to be quiet. Don't bother Jesus. And then, after the blind man's healed, what do they do? At the end of verse 43 of chapter 18, they gave praise to God. So we have the crowd shushing the blind man. Then we have the crowd praising God. Now we have the crowd grumbling. Like they should make up their mind about how they're going to react to what Jesus is, says and does. But they're grumbling. And perhaps they're jealous of Jesus' honoring of Zacchaeus and staying with him. That Jesus is there for maybe one night. There's only one place he can stay. Why can't he stay with me? Or maybe it's just the stain of such an association with such a person. And really, we can understand this. It could be that many in this crowd had a personal grievance against Zacchaeus, right? Uh, they might say to themselves, his fine clothes, his beautiful house, where Jesus is going to stay, the, the fine food he'll be served. All of this is possible because of how Zacchaeus and his employees overcharged me and my family and my business for years. They have perhaps real grievances against Zacchaeus. Why should Zacchaeus get the reward of having Jesus as a guest? Now, often as we see tax collectors, we see grumbling by others. If you look back at Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, when Jesus meets Levi, Matthew, Matthew invites him to to stay, to, to eat with him. And it says, uh, verse 29, Levi, that's Matthew again, gave a big reception for Jesus in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him, with them. So Matthew is in his house, and there's a great crowd. So it must have been a big house with lots of disreputable people. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Again, we have that that dual group, tax collectors and also sinners. I'm not sure which one was worse in their mind, probably tax collectors. Look at Luke 7. Luke 7, 29. And here they're talking about John the Baptist. <laughs> and this is another kind of funny way of phrasing it here. Verse 29 says, When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledge God's justice. Like the, the tax, collectors aren't, tax collectors aren't even considered people. We have people, and then we have the tax collectors. We have the sinners and the tax collectors. They're their own special category in their mind. But they acknowledge God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, that is those who were uh, sort of like scribes, those who were knowledgeable about God's law, they rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So we have the people, the tax collectors, have a good view of John, even being baptized by John. The Pharisees and the lawyers, on the other hand, the, the more respectable, the more godly, in quotes, people, are the ones who rejected God's purpose for themselves. And they would not get baptized by John. Verse 34, and Jesus says this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How do you... how? how Dare you associate you you 
who say that you are uh, a, a rabbi, the son of man, how dare you be a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Look at Luke 15. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Again, tax collectors and sinners. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So again, grumbling at the fact that Jesus would associate with tax collectors and sinners, whether they're eating or just uh, with Jesus, or Jesus, they're just listening to Jesus. The Pharisees, the scribes, grumble about that. Now, going back to Luke 19, the interesting thing is that the crowd is right, aren't they? Jesus is going to be the guest of someone who is a, a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus is a sinner. But that's exactly why Jesus went to the house, because he was a sinner. Now, these people who were grumbly didn't see, or maybe didn't care about the bigger picture. If we think back to the passage we just saw in Luke 5, at the reception that Jesus went to for himself at, at Levi's, at Matthew's house, Jesus answered instead of those who were grumbling, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you want to call the sinners to repentance, where do you have to go? You have to go where the sinners are. You have to sometimes go into their house and eat with them and show love to them, speak to them about their, their need for a Savior. So that's it's true. The man received sinners and ate with them. He did go, go to be the guest of a man who was a sinner, but he did that for a purpose. He did that to show the light of the gospel to him. We were just in Luke 15. We had that grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes, but after Jesus hears this, this grumbling, he tells them the parable of the, the lost sheep. The shepherd goes to find that one lost sheep, the lost coin. The woman loses a coin, and she goes and searches her house diligently to find it. And then we have the beautiful story of the prodigal son, where we have the son who goes off and is lost to his father, and yet he comes back. And we even see the grumbling of this older brother in Luke 15, verse 29. This is exactly what the Pharisees have been doing. This is the older brother, when he sees his, his brother come back and the father is, is joyful and having a celebration. The brother, says, became angry, verse 28, was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But this son answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a commandment of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. But then we see the heart of the father here, verse 31. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. Here we have the, the term even lost. This son was lost. He was dead. He's now alive. He's been found. And it says, verse 32, we had to celebrate and rejoice. The same construction as we had earlier. I have to go to be your guest today, Zacchaeus. This father says we have to celebrate and re- rejoice. It's necessary. We, we must do this. It would be wrong to not do this. And Jesus must stay at Zacchaeus' house because Zacchaeus is a sinner who needs a savior.
well, back to Luke 19. It may be here the same old grumbling crowd as we've seen elsewhere in Luke, but there's been a change in Zacchaeus. And we see next in verse 8, Zacchaeus' repentance. Verse 8 says, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. That says here at the beginning of the verse that he stopped. Your translations may say stood. Uh, Stopped gives the idea that maybe he stopped either at the the base of the tree or on the way walking back to Zacchaeus' house. But if he stood, it may have been that he stood during dinner. And it's hard to say for sure. It doesn't tell us. My guess is this is a little bit later as Jesus is now at Zacchaeus' home. But we don't know when this transformation happened. I expect that Jesus spoke with Zacchaeus at length at his house at dinner, spending time with him. But wherever this transformation, this repentance takes place, Zacchaeus has two commitments that will greatly reduce his bottom line. First of all, he's going to give half his possessions to the poor, and next he will pay back four times as much to anyone he's defrauded. What maybe just minutes or hours earlier had been the most important thing to him He's now eager to get rid of because he's encountered Jesus, and Jesus has changed his heart. Let's look back at Leviticus. What may have driven the the amounts that Zacchaeus mentions here about giving half his possessions to the poor and paying back four times uh, anything he's defrauded? Leviticus chapter 6. Let's look at verses 1 to 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him or through robbery, that is, let's say I, I give you something for a deposit and I come back later and say, Hey, can I have my, my thing back? You say, Oh, sorry, it's gone. I don't know what happened to it. But you've still got it. You lied about that. If he's extorted from his companion, verse 2, or has found out what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. So when you do that, you give back what you've defrauded plus 20%. Not, not a lot, but certainly uh, to show some restitution in this case. Earlier in Exodus, chapter 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. There's the idea of four sheep. If you take somebody's sheep and kill it, you have to pay back four sheep, make fourfold restitution. You might also remember, uh, and David, after he had gone into Bathsheba and Uriah was killed and Nathan confronts him, and he tells the story of a man who took somebody else's lamb for a meal. And David gets angry, and he says, Second Samuel twelve six, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So David, even in his sinful state, remembered this verse from Exodus that you make fourfold restitution if you take somebody's sheep. But Zacchaeus now maybe has this this fourfold idea in mind. He wants to go over and above what's required. 20% was not good enough for Zacchaeus. He wanted to pay back four times as much. And we see this change, don't we, in Zacchaeus' heart. Comparing him to the rich young ruler, 
Remember when the, the young man had said, I have kept all the law, what more do I require? And Jesus says in Luke 18.22, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what did this young man do? He went away sad because he had many possessions. He was very rich. So he wanted to hold on to his stuff, but Zacchaeus wanted to let it go. He wanted to pay back, make restitution for what he had done. And this is a, a good sign of repentance. He's not just sorry for what he's done, but he wants now to do all in his power to make things right with those he's wronged. And he may now go from being materially rich to poor, but he has spiritually gained something of an infinitely greater value, like the pearl of great price, the man who sells all that he has to gain that pearl. Zacchaeus is willing to give up all that he has for the sake of Christ. Now, if we stop the story here, verse 8, Jesus moves on, that might be a nice story of a corrupt rich man who's decided to turn over a new leaf. But there's much more to the story than that. We have not just some improvement in his behavior, but a change in his heart. We see here Zacchaeus' salvation. Luke 19, verse 9, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now this verse is impossible. This verse could not have happened. This is an impossible verse. Look back at Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 24, Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus, uh, those who heard it, verse 26, said, Then who can be saved? And Jesus says, verse 27, The things that are impossible with people are impossible with God. And that's why Luke 19.9 is an impossible verse. It's impossible for Zacchaeus to be saved. Now, we don't tend to include this story of Zacchaeus in lists of miracles, but this is certainly a miracle. A good definition of a miracle is something that is impossible without God, and this certainly qualifies. God did an impossible thing somewhere in this passage, somewhere in Luke 19. God did the impossible and saved this rich man. Now, when did this salvation come? We can't say for sure. Was it saving faith that took Zacchaeus up into the tree? Or did it come as he spoke with Jesus at his home? We don't know for sure when it happened, but we know for sure that it happened by God's grace. And Jesus says here, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. This is kind of a puzzling thing perhaps to us. Did salvation come to the house because Zacchaeus was a Jew? We think son of Abraham. We think of those who are descended from Abraham uh, according to the flesh. Well, no, it's not. You don't get saved because you are of anybody's physical lineage. It's something much deeper than who his great, 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 great grandfather was. Zacchaeus himself has been an outcast to the sons of Abraham according to the flesh. But on this day, he became a spiritual son of Abraham. And Paul takes up this theme in depth in a couple of places. Uh, and we don't have time to discuss it in much detail, but if you, have, if you can, turn to Romans chapter 4. And in this chapter, Paul is talking about Abraham being was justified by his faith. 
And he makes an important point here. When it says that Abraham was, uh, well, in verse 3 of Romans 4, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham had faith in God and God granted him salvation uh, based on that faith. And that happened before he was circumcised. So those who say that you must be circumcised to be saved are wrong because Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. That's Paul's one of Paul's points in this passage. Verse 9 says, Is this blessing then, this blessing that that was received by Abraham by faith, is this blessing then on the, uncir- on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be a father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but those who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So all that to say that now Abraham, it says here a couple of times, verse 11, that he's a father of all who believe without being circumcised. That is, he's the father of faith for all Gentiles. But he's also the father, of verse 12, of circumcision, that is, of the Jews, because he is our father by faith, our father in the faith. He's not my father as far as I know, genetically, but he is my father spiritually because he believed God and was given righteousness based on his faith in God's promises. Verse 16 says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that is, those who are Jewish, following God's law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Father to all those who believe in Christ, and all those who believe in God's promises. Verse 18 says, In hope against hope, Abraham believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And so the promise to Abraham was a promise of a physical seed, but a greater promise was that he would have this this uncountable group of nations that would believe uh, in the promises of God as well, and he would be a father of all them who who come to God through faith. Uh, Galatians 3 also. Galatians 3 is an important passage in the same idea of, of us being sons of Abraham spiritually. Verse 6, Galatians 3. Again, we don't have time to go in detail on this passage, but just look at a couple of verses here. It says, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Again, this is from Genesis 15, before he was circumcised. Abraham has faith in God's promises, and God saves him graciously on the basis of that. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And then all the way down to verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So, back to Luke chapter 19, verse 9. Zacchaeus was already a son of Abraham according to the flesh, but that day he became a son of Abraham because he believed in Christ. He believed in the 
the promises of God. And so he was one who was of faith, who was blessed with Abraham the believer. And he belonged to Christ, so then he was Abraham's son in the faith. While the word faith is not in the story of Zacchaeus, faith is all through this story, isn't it? What may be just a small faith as he runs and climbs up the tree, a greater faith as he hurries down the tree and receives Jesus into his home, and at some point, he had saving faith as he trusts in the Savior. And then he had an active repentant faith as he shares his wealth and makes restitution. So faith is all through the story, even though it's never mentioned by name. And before that faith, prior to that faith, there is electing grace. Jesus looked into the tree and called Zacchaeus down. God had to do that, reaching out to him. There was nothing in Zacchaeus that should have earned the love and attention of Jesus. In fact, it was the very opposite. Did Zacchaeus deserve to have Jesus dine at his home? Was he was he so important, so righteous, so good that the the Son of Man, this this rabbi, this miracle working rabbi, should go into his home? No, Zacchaeus was a sinner. Jesus, in a sense, did not belong there from from one perspective, but he did belong there because this man was a sinner, and Jesus had a divine appointment with him to, to, to show him the gospel, to teach him the gospel, that Zacchaeus might have faith and trust in the Savior. That's exactly why Jesus came. And that brings us then to Jesus' purpose, the last verse of this section. Luke 19, verse 10, says, For the Son of Man came, or has come, to seek and to save that which was lost. And this is one of the key verses of Luke. If you go through theology books, or you go through yourself, and find the real important key verses of Luke, this will come out in that list. And it sounds a lot like this verse in Mark we saw not too long ago. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a key verse in Mark we have a key verse now of Luke, a similar vein. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this declaration of Jesus has its roots in a number of places in the Old Testament. Let's go back to Ezekiel. We don't go to Ezekiel very much. But Ezekiel chapter 34. Such a, a powerful chapter. Because we have at the beginning, we don't, again, we don't have time to go through all of this, but God through Ezekiel is speaking against, prophesying against the shepherds of Israel, those who have authority, leadership roles in Israel. And it says, verse 4, speaking to these shepherds, those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the disease you have not healed. By the way, of course, he's not talking about actual shepherds. He's talking about these leaders who have the, the, the ordinary people in Israel they are supposed to take care of. The disease you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. There's the idea of lost again. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered uh, through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or to seek for them. No one to search or to seek for them. But then God intervenes. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. 
As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. And listen to verse 16. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. So that is what God does when he sees these scattered sheep that he loves, the ones that are lost. He seeks them, he finds them, brings them back. And look at verse 23. Then I will set over them, that is his flock, one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, of course, this is not speaking of David himself. David's long dead by this point. He's speaking of David's son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus fulfills Ezekiel 34, even as he goes into Zacchaeus' home. And salvation through Christ is a major theme in Luke, and we don't have time to go through all these right now, but Jesus especially shows this saving love for the outcasts and the despised that we have talked about last time, uh, the, the sinner who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. And Jesus says to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we have the parable of the, the lost sheep, the lost coin. We've talked about this before, the prodigal son, the, the, these people seeking out what's lost and finding it. And even at the end of the gospel, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And he seeks and finds a thief on the cross next to him. The penitent thief shows that his faith in Christ and Jesus says to uh, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So even at Jesus is on the brink of death, he brings another sheep into his fold. And Jesus says here, came to seek and to save that which was lost. There are those who are lost. In fact, we are all lost without Christ. Romans 3 says, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. The Son of Man comes to seek, but there's none who seeks for God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We are lost sheep. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And so Jesus here comes to seek and save that which is lost. There's a group of lost people. In fact, all of us are lost. But Jesus comes to seek and to save them, both. There may have been times in your life when You've been asked for help, and you've you tried to help, but you can't help for whatever reason. Uh, you could seek a sheep, but the sheep might be down in, in a uh, off a cliff somewhere, and you just can't reach the sheep to help them. The sheep is lost in your power. Or there could be a situation where you could save, but you're not willing to seek. So whoever is going to be saved must come to you. they got to come to me to get their salvation. So Jesus theoretically, could be aloof, and he could just say, you come to me first, and then I'll decide if I want to give you salvation. 
Or maybe Jesus is a, a compassionate man, but not a powerful man. And he can seek you, but he can't save you. But Jesus, as the perfect, compassionate, loving Son of God, can do the seeking and the saving both. Then There's one more feature to the story, and it's implicit, I think, but it must have been there. Even as we saw Zacchaeus received Jesus with joy, this is, must have been a great time of great rejoicing for Jesus as well. Even as his heart is burdened as he goes up to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross, in just a few days, he has found a lost sheep. We can remind ourselves of the, the shepherd in Luke 15. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So somewhere in the story, Luke 19, there was rejoicing in heaven as this lost sheep Zacchaeus came to the fold of Christ. And how much more would Jesus himself rejoice than the angels in heaven? The Jesus even though it doesn't say so, we know he has great joy in his heart as he sees Zacchaeus come to faith in the Savior. Well, we're out of time, but let's just close with a few points real quick, a few points of application. First of all, again, of course, we see the compassion of Jesus. In this case, he's not healing a physically blind man, but a spiritually blind man. And he called up to Zacchaeus because he knew Zacchaeus was lost and he wanted to save him. And he's the same Savior today. And we know that no one is beyond the reach of salvation. First Timothy 1.15, Paul says, It's a trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He agrees with Jesus. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. If Christ can save Paul, this persecutor of the church, if Christ can save Zacchaeus, this outcast, this, this fraudster, this man who loved money more than anything, he can save any of you as well if you come to him in faith. If you see yourself as lost, that's great news, as long as you come to Jesus to be saved. But even as Zacchaeus hurried to see Jesus, you yourself must hurry to see, to, to see Christ, to come to Christ, because you don't know when your next opportunity would be. If Zacchaeus had not climbed that tree, he would not have seen Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus, after, after that, never came to Jericho again. That was his last opportunity to meet Jesus in his town. But because Jesus reached out to him, he took the opportunity to have faith in Christ. And so this may be your last chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so believe in Christ even today. We also want to say before we leave that true faith is repentant faith. Paul says for 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And if you profess to be a Christian and yet live in unrepentant sin, you have reason to question whether your faith is real. John the Baptist said in Luke 3.8, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so if Zacchaeus had kept all his stuff after believing in Jesus, we would question his salvation. But because he had this changed heart, we know he's a, a changed uh, individual that, that the salvation of God has come upon him. He's a true believer in Jesus Christ.
And then finally, before we close, even as Jesus' purpose is to seek and save the lost, so also should our, be, our purpose be to seek to save the lost. If Jesus wants to, to go out and find those who need to hear the word of, of Christ, we ourselves must be seeking and saving the lost by his grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this look into the story of Zacchaeus. There's so much more that could be said, but let's just rejoice and praise you that you sent your son to save sinners, among whom was this man Zacchaeus. And he called out to him and, and brought him uh, into his presence to to preach the gospel and that Zacchaeus might be saved. And we thank you you've done the same for us, maybe not as dramatically, and yet you have opened our eyes to behold your glorious gospel. If there are those here who don't know you today, we pray that they would come to faith in Christ even now. Hurry to, to come to faith in you. And help us to be compassionate like Christ, to be loving like Christ, to be those who seek and save the lost by your grace. May we do so for Jesus' sake. Amen.